Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. For any curiosity um, and desire to connect the dots or reach across the aisle to a different department, you know, there were definitely like nine conversations for every 10 around like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that because, you know, that's that's not your title or that's not your job or what are you doing? Uh, but there was always like one out of 10 conversations that, that were encouraged by that curiosity. And they just gave me some inspiration or some wisdom in terms of how to navigate. So uh, always thankful for that. But I think it goes back to like, again, back to the youth around like knowledge of self. The world's going to tell you, no, they don't see that for you. And I think, you know, having that, that seed planted early uh, for my parents um, just kept me basically resisting in that sort of uh, inclination from other people to say, well, you may say it's not for me or you don't see it, but like, why not me? I'm going to, I'm going to go lean into this curiosity. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Kevin, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, thank you for having me. It is my absolute pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your work by way of your publicist. Uh, you have a new book out called Reimagining Design, Unlocking Strategic Innovation. But what really got my attention about your story was the fact that you designed Air Jordans. And when I saw that, I was like, hell yes, I want to talk to Kevin because Air Jordans <laughs> are definitely unmistakable. But before we get into all of that, uh, having read the book, I wanted to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Yeah, no, thank you. I, I was born in Newburgh, New York, but I spent the majority of my childhood in the Down River Detroit metropolitan area. Um, and as you can imagine, most of, most of my neighbors, uh, the community at large, uh, worked for primarily the big automotive brands, uh, American brands in Detroit, from Chrysler, Ford, GM kind of thing. And um, I think what was celebrated around me was sort of the expectation that you'd probably work for one of the big automotive brands at some point, and you were likely going to be either a, an engineer or a business person for those for those brands. So one of the, the things that you talk about in the book is that you actually were kind of an upper middle class kid surrounded by people who weren't. And you allude to the fact that your parents, you know, 
wanted to make sure that you maintained awareness of that. How, how did they go about doing that? Uh, you know, I, I think living in predominantly uh, white middle-class neighborhoods in that area. Um, and then also like just reckoning with like what was being taught in the classroom, the, the notion of like, you know, being a black person, you, you definitely felt like the other uh, many times. Um, and usually the, the history that was covered around black history was like reserved to black history month or like maybe a single page out of the social studies book. Uh, so my parents uh, originally coming from the South and um, you know, being like definitely tapped into generations that came before them. They definitely had a awareness of like just ensuring that knowledge of self was promoted in the household. And so we were always like on weekends, um, you know, going to museums, engaging in extracurricular things that uh, exposed us kids to, to more than what, you know, we were exposed to in our everyday sort of walk through the school systems and um, just celebration of black history, um, you know, reading, where we come from, all, all that was just a part of the, I guess, zeitgeist in, in the family home. Yeah. What did they teach you about what it means to be Black in America? Because I've had a number of African-American guests, some of who served time in prison, others who've built incredible companies. And the degree to which they are taught things is really diverse. It's, it's kind of mind-blowing. Some of them said they learned absolutely nothing. And some of them, you know, are the things we hear, like you're taught to fear the police, uh, you know. I'm curious, like, what did your parents teach you about what the color of your skin meant? You know, I think, I think in general, they, they just encouraged us to be proud of who we are. Um, and I think that was like celebrated in terms of like the stories of like the family of which we came from. Um, you know, my, on my, on my mom's side, she was one of, of 10 kids and her, you know, her father um, owned land at a time where we're, you know, that was like absurdly sort of heard of, unheard of in, uh, and this was the panhandle of, of Florida at the time. He actually owned land and, you know, it was actually, you know, raising a family that was arguably middle-class for that time period. But the, the level of, um, you know, harassment that they endured because they, they held land. Um, and they, they had, you know, <laughs> my mom would tell it like they had guns literally propped up at every nook and cranny of the house in case something were to sort of pop off. So, and, you know, in the book, I, I sort of tell the story of, of how when my mom was like not even two, they, their house got burned down from white, white supremacist sort of actions in the, the area. Um, so these stories were like vividly told from my family, like immediate family and generations of, of family that came before. Um, and so that, I think that's where the rooting took place. Yeah. Well, so when most of us think of Detroit, I think that what we see is basically what we see on TV. Like I think my primary association with Michigan or Detroit is Flint because of all the mm. media that I've been exposed to. Um, what misperceptions do you think that media creates about the communities in that area? Um, you know, I, I, I definitely, I think the natural inclination is to talk about like, you know, in the, the industry sort of penetration and footprint on on the culture of that area. And then, uh, as you said, like Flint, like we, we see stories of how when industries leave um, supply chains outsource or, and these kind of things where, you know, communities are left reeling from loss of jobs, loss of infrastructure, loss of support. Um, 
So that, I mean, that, that's real. Those, those systemic issues are real and continuing to plague those areas. But at the same time, um, that, 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 that area and in particular the black community across that area, just the level of creativity, ingenuity, entrepreneurship. I, I think oftentimes those stories don't get told. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember we had uh, Sean Dove, who was the, the founder of the campaign for black male achievement here. And one of the things that he had told me was he said he realized that he wouldn't see the, you know, the end of racism in his lifetime. And that, he, mm-hmm. you know, as disappointing as it was, he came to that conclusion. And I, I remember telling him, I was like, Sean, don't you think it's crazy that we're in 2022 and we're having a conversation about something that we thought we got past almost 60 years ago and it's still so prevalent? I mean, as an African-American person, like, what do you make of that? Like, how did we get past this? Because you and I are both not white. And I remember when all the George Floyd stuff was going on, you know, I had two white roommates and one of them started reading, you know, either White Fragility or one of those books. And he's just like, yeah, I guess I never thought about my skin color. I was like, yeah, that's because in America, if you're white, it's like being, you know, a fit, you know, water to a fish. You don't think about it. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I was a brown kid who grew up in a small Texas town. So I was very aware of my skin color. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I think in any space that we navigate and. Uh, I, I guess I'll first say that every um, every overt thing that we might see in the news whether it's police brutality in the black community or uh, crimes against hate crimes against Asian American Pacific Islanders, like the, the, the overt stuff that jars us definitely still connects to the covert uh, racism and ignorance that we, that we experience and feel, whether it's consciously or subconsciously in places where we spend a lot of time. Uh, so whether it's the workplace or, you know, navigating academic institutions you know, everything that we navigate is the way it is by design. And I, I think, you know, I think the world sort of is waking up still, you know, and unfortunately it took black lives being murdered and murdered in the streets via the summer of George Floyd and, and whatnot for people to become aware. But um, many of the spaces have been designed by folks who make up, you know, the, I would say very few folks with a lot of power and privilege that profess to be the majority, profess to be sort of the the gold standard, and profess to upheld a, uphold some sense of meritocracy. And you know, I think a lot of those biases, a lot of that ignorance, racism, is still very much hardwired in everything that we navigate today. So yes, it will take a long time for all that to get unwound and unpacked. So how do you begin to unwind and unpack all of that? I mean, and. It, where does it start? Does it start at the individual level, the community level? Because clearly, to your point, I often think politicians make decisions that don't affect them at all. They're making decisions on behalf of people's lives when they're not affected by those decisions. Like the person I always go back to is like Steve Mnuchin is making treasury policy for poor people. And he has a guy, he was a guy who's worth a hundred million dollars. Yeah. I, you know, I think, I think it takes at every level, honestly, of just taking uh, shining a light on the truth, and you know, how, like how do we do that? I think I think human beings um, and and communities at large they're motivated by stories. Movements are started by sheer fact of of really elevating a, a story that that galvanizes people, that inspires people, that you know uh, bubbles up the convictions inside of us when we hear a story around the truth. And in, in many ways, I think in, in you know recent decades, the truth has been hidden. You know, 
oh, you know, speaking for the black community, um, you know, if, if rights were bestowed on a certain year, the right to vote, the right to do certain things, our civil rights were, you know, officially granted to us. But if, if the stories around how deeply wired our institutions have been informed by racism and ignorance and bias, like if, if that truth has been withheld for so long, and now we're starting to see stories actually, you know, unearthing the truth, unearthing the data, unearthing the the threads of, of systemic imbalance and how that has informed everything from redlining to um, the, the guiding principles that guide artificial intelligence to, you know, everything. Like we, we can now start to share these stories. We can start to, you know, visualize the data, if you will, and, yeah. and, and put a glaring light on those imbalances. So that, that's where I, I find hope that, you know, the light is finally penetrating in some ways. Yeah. Well, I want to come back to that. Um, we'll talk about diversity, inclusion, and the role it plays in design a bit later. Uh, mm-hmm. So what did your parents encourage you to do as far as, you know, a career advice or anything like that? Did they give you any specific advice about making your way in the world? You know, I think, I think they definitely um, observed us kids and what we were sort of into naturally. And for me, uh, drawing ha- always, uh, sorry, drawing always had a place. Uh, that was how I sort of like understood and observed the world and expressed the world in terms of how I understood it working. Um, but in terms of like the translation between that and a career path, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily understood or fully embodied in terms of how my family may have viewed that. They, of course they encouraged me. They, they applauded, um, my attempts to exercise creative volition, but again, they, their worldview didn't necessarily comprehend or understand design or innovation. I think, I think the, the natural inclination was to think about like engineering as a potential career path. Cause they saw that I was, you know, sort of decent at, at, at science and mathematics as, as well as the drawing and all those things, you know, could have some viability on an engineering career path. So that was sort of the, the thing. And they always asked me like, what do you want to do? And, and I said, I think at one point, Oh yeah. Engineering, I think is the path for me. But I didn't really fully understand what that meant. Um, And I did remember anecdotes that spoke to creativity, but I didn't know how to articulate them as design or innovation. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now, with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I can relate. I mean, you know, I always jokingly say the Indian parent motivational speech is what kind of doctor, lawyer, engineer do you want to be? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. how in the world do you go from you know studying engineering at notre dame to designing for nike and one other question on top of that what would you tell parents listening to this about encouraging creative self-expression in their kids uh yeah i think i think what i would tell parents is that based on how the world is moving how how um disciplines are converging no matter whether it's from a you know business, science, technology, um, or creative angle, the future requires a, a commingling of all these different disciplines. And, and what was maybe not deemed a credible or viable career path before, the world has absolutely changed to embrace the power of creativity. So any one of those disciplines, like the, there, there are viable careers that you should seriously have your kids look into based on their curiosities. Um, the world has changed in that respect. So speaking of curiosity, how in the world does somebody who studies engineering <laughs> become somebody who designs shoes? You know, I, I think um, hindsight being 2020, I think when I was an engineer, I, I loved that chapter, honestly. It, you know, it was the chance to apply um, science, math, uh, ingenuity, experimentation, as, as well as, you know, visualizing and drawing, of course, uh, but, but really cutting my teeth on product in that world. But I can say that within most engineering paths, sometimes like when you're a good engineer, you have a particular subject matter expertise, companies may want to like just have you keep exercising that capability over and over again. And you might feel a limitation on your agency for where your career can ultimately go. 
Um, and I, and I started to feel that saturation. I, f- I felt that plateauing happening, but, um, the curious me w- wanted to know, like, you know, how can I have more license or influence? Like, how can I help influence the bigger picture around what the company's doing beyond my technical background? So fast forward, you know, that, that, that curiosity made me realize that I actually lacked a tremendous amount of, you know, just business acumen in general to be a part of a strategic conversation. And so that curiosity led to business school. Business school allowed me two years to sort of like take a step back and look at the career with holistic eyes. And I just remembered that creative itch from youth that was scratching. And I told myself, you know what, I I could go back to an engineering organization or I could try to find an organization that embodied not only strategy and technology, but also creative faculties as well. And not not knowing what I would do with that, but that was where the heartstrings were tugging. And thankfully, um, Nike, companies like Nike and Apple, uh, of course, rose to the top of the list for that reason. And Nike afforded me a path in. So I started as a business planner. Uh, but re- as you remember, I was a product person from my engineering background. And I just started networking with people while being mindful to the the, 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 the business planning job. Um, but, you know, net- networking uh, to meet those product folks. And sure enough, after 18 months, um, coffee chats ended up becoming stretch assignments where I was like helping the product organizations sort of as a side hustle for free, (laughs) just to show that I was passionate about what they were doing. And then that led to a formalized job within the footwear product engine at Nike. And that's when I started meeting real professional designers for the first time. And I became just immensely curious about what they were working on. Um, And that, that networking with creatives turned into more side hustles. And so the Jordan brand they were the first one uh, to take a bet on me. They had a, they had too many briefs, not enough designers to take them on. And so the footwear design director at the time, a gentleman by the name of Dwayne Edwards, who's a friend and mentor to this day, um, you know, he said, you know, if you meet me in the mornings, early morning, like let's meet here at six at my office, we'll commiserate on these briefs. I'll, I'll guide you. Um, and then we'll go do our day jobs. And then you go work on my assignments at night and come back the next morning. So we did that for a year and launched two shoes in the marketplace um, that did really well for the Jordan brand that, that year. And uh, that started opening up more doors. Yeah. Why do you think more people are not like that when it comes to seeking opportunities in their career? They kind of, you know, stick to their job. I, I think back to the movie Son of a Woman, who, when Al Pacino looks at Chris O'Donnell and says, yeah, we're going to New York. And he's like, I can't go to New York. And he says, what are you, some kind of chicken shit who sticks to job description only? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Um, and you know, I definitely felt that too. You know, there was for any curiosity um, and desire to connect the dots or reach across the aisle to a different department, you know, there were definitely like nine conversations for every 10 around like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that because, you know, that's, that's not your title or that's not your job or what are you doing? Uh, but there was always like one out of 10 conversations that, that were encouraged by that curiosity. And they just gave me some inspiration or some wisdom in terms of how to navigate. So I uh, always thankful for that. But I think it goes back to like, again, back to the youth around like knowledge of self, the world's going to tell you, no, they don't see that for you. And I think, you know, having that, that seed planted early uh, from my parents um, just kept me basically resisting that sort of uh, inclination from other people to say, well, you may say it's not for me or you don't see it, but like, why not me? I'm going to, I'm going to go lean into this curiosity. No. 
Well, let's talk specifically about Air Jordan as a, as a brand, because I, I remember in our email exchange, I told you that I, you know, those were the shoes that I could never afford. And I very distinctly remember all the ones I couldn't afford and kids coming to school with baby Jordans as keychains. Uh, I'm not a sneakerhead, <laughs> but Jordans, you know, Air Jordans have always stayed, you know, sort of in the zeitgeist as this iconic shoe. And mm-hmm. I remember when I, I had my first internship, even though I don't play basketball, I haven't set foot on a basketball court in years. I did that summer. First thing I did when I got a paycheck is I went down to the Nike outlet. I bought a pair of Air Jordans for no good reason. <laughs> and it was mainly to you know satisfy that childhood desire. Um, and so what is it about something like the Jordan brand? Like, why is it that it has the impact on culture that it does? Um, you know, why is it that, it that it has the staying power that it does? What enables that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I definitely, my, my mind was blown when I got to know the Jordan team and it was invited. They, they welcomed me with open arms because I think they, they realized, uh, not just Dwayne, but the other team members, they realized that I was willing to do anything and everything to, to push ideas forward and, and respect the Jordan way of how to do things. Um, and I, I can say, um, you know, as a, former insider uh, within Nike, like when I, when I navigated those Jordan meetings, they, they did things differently. I think, I think the fact that, you know, Michael Jordan, who, you know, was the pinnacle the inspiration and still very much an inspiration uh, for the reasons of like how he performed on and off the court, like his, his competitive mentality, his drive for excellence, like all those things, like, you know, you, you felt that in the Jordan brand as, as a team, as an organization, um, and he wasn't just, um, he wasn't just a, a, a black pinnacle athlete that was basically, um, aligning himself to whatever Nike was going to give him as in terms of like, you know, game shoes and, and the franchise that was Jordan brand. He, he, ha- he had expectations of the brand, like the fact that it would be guided by, you know, primarily black leadership, like the, the team had to be of the culture. And, and, you know, per, per Michael Jordan's sort of wishes and, and requirements to be in relationship with Nike. So you, you felt the culture when you navigated the Jordan brand team. And, you know, they were a small, they, they, they are very much a small scrappy team compared to perhaps other larger Nike categories. And that, that team knows how to do a lot with less and they make stuff happen because they're very proximate to their, to their audience in a good ways, I think. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it, it sounds a lot like the industrial design team at Apple from what I've read about that team. Uh, because I, I remember I've seen a handful of documentaries about this. Uh, one was with Sonny Vaccaro. Another was with Tinker Hatfield. I think there was a sneakerhead documentary on Netflix. And the level of just obsessiveness and detail that goes into this was mind boggling to me. And I think the thing that I remember very distinctly was when uh, LeBron was negotiating with Adidas and Nike. And they said that, you know, Adidas wouldn't offer more. And so he went with Nike and that shoe apparently ended up making a fortune in the first year. They made that money back a hundred times over. (laughs) Yeah, not surprising. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the thing is like, you know, to me, Jordans were this sort of, you know, thing that I knew I could never afford. My parents couldn't afford to buy them. And I remember you telling me the same thing that you didn't have your first pair until you, <laughs> you know, worked at, at Nike. And yet you, so there's a sort of interesting contrast. Right? We live in this world of, you know, social media where everybody's lives are on public display. We're all showing off. 
And so how do you balance that with the sort of value that, hey, this is not about, you know, showing off or how much money a kid has, but ultimately the value of performance? Does that make sense? I realize it's kind of a weird, nebulous question. Uh, you know, I, I definitely am sort of like sometimes revolted by like hype beast culture where, yeah. <laughs> where it's like, you know, just, just to show off that you have the new, the newer, better thing. Um, it, 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 it isn't necessarily, um, it doesn't speak to like what humans and communities need. If anything, it's just kind of showing off waste. I guess it's sort of the impression I get with a lot of stuff that I find celebrated on social media, but at the same time, you know, as a product person, as a designer, I, I love a good product. I, I love to um, engage. Let's, let's say if we're talking sneakers, like I, I'll, I'll engage a pair. If I, if I fall in love with the story of how that, that shoe was conceived or, you know, the, the, the story and brand and, uh, celebrity around like the, the, the pinnacle athlete that I was modeled after. Like if there's a story that, that, that makes me remember like the things that inspired me as a kid, um, the things that I find fascinating, then I'll latch onto that story. I'll latch onto the product and I'll keep that product for a, a while, you know, to, and, and, and celebrate it every time I wear it and feel good. It makes me feel good. Like that I'm for just flashing uh, extravagance for the sake of it. I'm, I'm not necessarily for that. Yeah, it's like those idiots at my high, you know, junior high who showed up with baby Jordans as keychains, <laughs> which yeah. to this day, I still can't forget. Um, well, what actually goes into the process of this? Like, what does this design process look like? Because I think that'll make a, a perfect setup to talking about the book. And, and, you know, how do we apply these principles in our own work? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think if we use shoes as, a, as an example, I mean, they're there usually is some like cloud of opportunity surrounding, you know, the, 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 the business's appetite to, to want to conceive of a new shoe. Um, you know, perhaps there's a, a, a you know, little bit of a white space sort of carved in the market. Um, you know, so the, the industry landscape might uh, provide good timing to introduce a new product. Uh, there could be, you know, a, a set of potential athlete needs, uh, or, or things, value criteria that a particular athlete may like prioritize or value more than anything else. And we need to elevate that, tap into that. Uh, there also could be trends that are sort of informing uh, spaces and curiosities. Trends could you know be the full gamut of trend from tech trends, material innovation, um, color, you know, colors of, of the season that, you know, folks are interested in. And then we might go find like examples, like, you know, you know, perhaps if I'm working on a shoe, there might be a, a, a color or material inspiration over in fash, high fashion or in Swiss watches. I'm just making it up. But like I may like post those things on my mood board to inspire the next step. And then I'm going to go on a creative journey of of and, and perhaps there's a brief that, you know, the, the category is using to articulate the opportunity a bit more clearly for me as the designer. But I'm going to go I'm going to go on a path of additional discovery. So maybe I'm going to go talk to more athletes. I'm going to go find extreme athletes, whether they're laggards or early adopters um, and, and get more, you know, latent substance around, you know, unmet needs and motivations that they're thinking about. And then I'm going to go on a tear of ideation. I'm going to diverge and create multiple sketches, if not 
tens or hundreds of sketches, uh, little thumbnails to get to some uh, threads of potential opportunity as, as in terms of how I'm rationalizing the opportunity through a design lens. And then at some point, I'm going to turn the corner and converge on a couple of bets that I want to propose to the team. And, you know, if I, if I rewind myself and put myself back in the Jordan brand uh, team, I'm also, it's not just me sort of pushing that idea forward. I, I also have to lockstep in with the, the uh, developer on the team who's sort of looking at the engineering realities, looking downstream to what the factories have to deal with. I also have to sync and align with the product, the product marketer that's on the team and ensure that, you know, they, they, I, I got to understand how they foresee the shoe sitting on the shoe self, shelf, how that's being prioritized, how that's being priced, how that's being merchandised. Like all those considerations go into whether a shoe can survive the gauntlet of gates and dates and, and decision, uh, decision-making steps until it actually is commercialized on the store shelf. So that, that, you know, ebb and flow of discovery, that ebb and flow of, of divergent ideation leading to convergent ideation to something that people get excited about. Like that's the typical process for me. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you say in the book is that we have to ask ourselves a couple of basic questions before we dive into this area. It continues to amaze me how often these basic questions are overlooked or taken for granted when investigating a business's value proposition. Who is our audience? Who are we serving? who's serving them, who are all the primary constituents and stakeholders, what do they value? And th- I think that that really struck me because I see this so often, particularly with digital products where people create something and they wonder why nobody wants to buy it. And you know, it took me a long time to really understand that, okay, wait a minute, if you want somebody to spend money on something, it actually has to solve some sort of problem for them. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, you know, oftentimes there's different motivations around an opportunity and um, you know, I'll be ext- extreme in terms of this characterization, but with, with, especially with digitization and, and sort of the, the rush, the gold rush to want to launch the next app and, and, and think that that's going to, you know, garner us the outsized returns and make our investors happy. But if, if we're sort of coding in a vacuum uh, against some preconceived hypothesis and we haven't talked to anyone or we don't have a good sense of like who, our audience really is and how they would actually use the product hypothesis that we have on the table, you know, we're, we're going to end up having a rude awakening when, you know, we try to like launch and we try to like scale and, and we don't achieve that resonance or like even worse, if we're part of a, a team and maybe that team includes investors and, and the like that are so fed into the hypothesis that they're willing to just throw money and burn money <laughs> until they feel that they're going to get an outcome and that outcome never materializes. And, you know, we, we've seen stories like that um, rush to epic, epic scales. And, you know, there's all of a sudden that, that deflation <laughs> and, you know, there actually could be harm as a part of that story arc as well, if we're not careful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the other things that you talk about, um, is this idea of first principles. And you say, uh, usually when we think about innovation against a given industry sector, there's a tendency for people to subconsciously align themselves to the present consensus of how an industry is supposed to run or behave. Instead, I would encourage us to evoke a conversation that focuses on the first principles of the industry in question. Let's let's you know unpack that a bit more, because I think first principles unless you've sat around reading Ray Dalio books or spent a lot of time reading about Elon Musk, they can be somewhat nebulous. But let's just talk about it in terms of content creators. Like take the podcast, for example. I think when I looked at first principles, I was like, what is a podcast made of ultimately? It's not audio, it's words. 
and words can be repackaged and repurposed in all sorts of ways. Like I started to really kind of see this through a very different lens, but how do you start to develop a capacity for first principles thinking? Uh, honestly, it's, it's breaking down the, the fundamental piece parts, honestly. Um, I think in my experience, like I'll step into any new business opportunity and I definitely feel that pressure of market convention in terms of like, this is how things have been done. And, you know, you need to align to that. You need to align to like, what's going to move the needle in my, in my particular like space, respect the metrics and the KPIs that we need to hit. If we're talking about a new product, it still has to meet these KPIs and, and get investors back their money. Like these are the pressures that we feel. And then also add computation to the mix. And the speed of digital, the speed of change that's expected only seems to be increasing. So in many ways, I've found that speed is often an, an invisible authority in the room that inhibits teams or individuals to be able to raise their hand and start asking some of those questions. Like, like why does it have to be this way? Or why do we have to like placate to the norms always? Like, can we, can we break convention? Um, so all I'm, all I'm encouraging is like, I think when we have design at the table in these situations, like we can actually revisit the piece parts that make the industry sort of tick and in our own company, like how that ticks. And, you know, there, there are some canvases that we could use as well as other frameworks to be able to dismantle the piece parts, really expose the assumptions that are at play behind any supply chain or behind any business model and get that on the wall and, 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 and allow ourselves the, the opportunity or the mind space just to start asking some questions like, why does, why does this input assumption always have to hold true? I think in the book, I use the example of like anytime you're making new footwear, there's really expensive molds that are required. And think about all the size runs around a shoe from size you know, 7 all the way up to 13 to 14. Think about all the expensive steel molds that are required to have anything commercialized in the footwear space. But like, why do we have to just always accept that, that cost assumption as a, as a foundational first principle? Like why, why can't we introduce different methods of make to disrupt that input assumption to open up opportunities for whether it's customization or personalization. So I, I talk about the example of additive manufacturing as an example where you could actually disrupt the input cost associated with steel molds. Like, why can't we do another type of mold or print, you know, footwear parts in the first place from a 3D printer and have that be part of the product? Like, this is some of the disruption that we're already starting to see in the space of footwear. But um, I think it applies true for any business model opportunity. Yeah. Well, speaking of canvases that we can use, you have this four quadrant model where you talk about horizontal and vertical growth and existing revenue and new revenue. Can you expand on that and explain it to us? Sure. So at the end of the day, and this is coming from my professional experiences as a product person and as a designer, is that ultimately, whether you call it invention, innovation, or you get excited around any idea, a business is always going to translate that into growth. And growth is a, is a fully loaded word in that we have, it's important for us to unpack the context around what type of growth that we're after. So, you know, many organizations that I work with to this day, they might be a startup that's trying to build something from Greenfield, or it might be a large corporate that already has an existing franchise that they need to, that they, they need to sustain and cultivate. At the same time, they're also like reckoning with 
disruption where, you know, the market is eroding what has worked for them in past decades. Like the market is now different in that, you know, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different competitive threats to the core franchise. So they might need to think about like ways to like proactively manage the maturation of their core franchise and eventually replace it with another viable like value proposition that fosters high growth and high margin and those kind of things. So they need to think about like proactively sunsetting their stuff for new stuff eventually. Uh, so the notion of growth, depending on what you're working on, context is so important. So that two by two that you mentioned, like the left side of that two by two is giving recognition to the there, there it's giving recognition to the core platform that's already there. So you might need to like tweak, tweak the existing franchise and, and fix things that are broken. We call that re-engineering. But sometimes you might need to like build from zero to one a new capability that will eventually replace the existing core franchise. So that you could you could say, you know, we're gonna proactively make a competitive attacker attacker ourselves, a digital attacker, for example that will replace perhaps, uh, you know, the incumbent core franchise. So that's, that's a, like a, a vertical element, but again, it's all about addressing the core franchise. But if we move to the right of the two by two, um, you know, there, there might be ways to extend the benefits of the core franchise and like reimagine customer journeys, customer interfaces and experiences. So that gets into the reimagining territory. But if we want to build like, let's say a new startup from Greenfield around a given unmet need in the marketplace, uh, we may have to build a vertical business from zero to one. And it's going to offer, you know, perhaps differentiated experiences beyond what the core business is doing right now. So that's something that we have to build from Greenfield and bring in the right capabilities and treat it like a startup. Um, so that's how I dimensionalize growth in that respect. Mm. So one other framework you talk about is the steep framework. Can you uh, explain what that is and, and how we apply that? Yeah. And, you know, as we sort of looked at the future time horizon, I sort of used the, the, the visual metaphor of a looking glass. Um, we have to think about like how trends are in inspiring and informing the art of what's possible and even plausible. Now, when I mention trends, like I'm, I'm even guilty of it in that my mind might latch on to tech trends like Moore's law and <laughs> power of computation and, you know, uh, battery size getting better, chips getting smaller and more capable and all, all the things that we typically hear about with regard to tech trends. But what the STEEP acronym encourages us to start to think about is to really explore the full gamut, the full diversity, the full categorization of potential trends that are informing a given space. And so STEEP is just a helpful rubric to get people to think more holistically and widen their aperture. Uh, so steep refers to the, let, let, let's actually go curate and collect the sociological, the technological, the economic, the environmental, the policy slash regulatory, and even energy related trends that are informing a given space. And usually when we write the acronym, sometimes we put a plus sign because there might be other categories of trend that we need to curate. Like in the space of healthcare, there might be delivery model trends and innovation that we need to curate and collect as well. So you might add an additional category around delivery trends for healthcare. Um, but it's all, all in the spirit of just, hey, starting point, it's a rubric, let's widen the aperture using it. Yeah. 
One other thing that really struck me that you said, uh, you said that we need to evoke a central story of a person's experience that represents the new idea. What story are we telling? Is it an interaction between human beings? Is it an interaction between a human and a machine? Is it a machine to machine interaction that emulates some desired trait of interactive behavior? What story we're telling and what medium will be necessary to fully embody that story? Uh, how do you apply that? Like, let's go back to shoes. Like, when you look at this through the lens of designing shoes, how does that play out? Yeah, you know, I, I think, I think ultimately, the consu- the customer, the consumer wants to be a part of a story in terms of why they would, you know, be open to considering purchasing a new product, a, you know, new pair of kicks. But I think I, I, what I encourage is that we think about like how we show up for that person that we're designing for. Not, not in terms of us like trying to convince them to buy all the time. Like, no, how do we actually show up in their journey and in their circumstances? So like, does that new pair of kicks actually provide a new level of utility that they hadn't had before? That's going to like satiate a desire to perform. So utility becomes a key ingredient of the story of like how we, how do we show up and how do we unlock utility in their journey on their terms? And then secondly, we know that customers always uh, being impinged with all kinds of marketing messages from every brand under the sun. So like how can, you know, in our story, how can we actually parse through the noise and convince that person that we're the most authentic bet to decide upon? Like if, if, if we parse information that's going to actually uh, elevate their confidence to be able to like embrace that new utility that we're recommending to them. And then lastly, if we show up in the right way, you know, with, with our story that melds into their, you know, evolving and emerging story. And we, if we show up at the right inflection point when they need us the most, like we'll, we'll establish an emotional bond. Like we, we were there when it mattered, right? And so that emotional bond is going to make that person want to consider us the next time they have a need. And then that's how loyalty, I think, is, is established when it comes to certain brands, especially in footwear. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in, in a lot of ways, if I were to summarize it, it's like, you know, be like Mike is, is the story <laughs> a kid gets to tell themselves when they put on a pair of Nikes. I mean, that was kind of, I remember when I got to go to a basketball game when I was a kid, my mom asked me, she had a, a doctor that she worked for who had season tickets to the Rockets. And keep in mind, this was like during the uh, um, last dance era when <laughs> the Bulls were basically Jordan, Pippen, pretty much everybody. And like any kid, I was like, I want to see the Bulls. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> totally. I mean, it's like you see performance on display, you, you get a sense of that emerging story that, you know, that that's someone that worked harder than anyone in the gym on the court. And you're seeing like the manifestation in that moment. And yet that, that, that those moments never leave you. And of course it's going to make you want to go buy the next pair of shoes that allow you to jump faster, you know, run, run farther, run faster and be a part yeah. of that story okay. too. Unfortunately, I'm Indian. I was, you know, not predetermined for athletic accomplishment. <laughs> like, you know, ge- I was genetically, you know, screwed. Uh, you know, as, as we always joke, it's like there's no way, you know, no, no Indians. Have, actually, there is an Indian guy who made it to the NBA. Surprisingly, there's a documentary about him on Netflix. Came from some village in India. Oh, I have to check that out. <laughs> yeah, it's called a billion to one. <laughs> billion to one. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, one of the things that 
you also say is that brand is more than a logo or word mark. Most innovations need a lot of affordances to get off the ground and branding offers a nice set of checks and balances for each element of new ecology that we're bringing into the marketplace. It can serve as a filter of sorts. We can check each element for authenticity behind the overarching promise. Remember the three C's, commerce, content, and community. These and their interconnections, especially important in our hyper-connected world. Brand helps shape the mission, vision, and emotional characteristics of each affordance with our growing ecology. Brand needs to shape the tone, voice, feeling, hierarchy, and visual language language of our content strategy. Brand needs to excite a community by giving clear messages that its members can identify with and rally around based on the demonstrated promise to satiate their needs. And I love that because I think that branding is one of those things that is so misunderstood and so nebulous. And when I, whenever I think about personal branding, I think about uh, something that Oprah told to Tom Brady when she was talking about some young girl who was saying, I'm building my personal brand. And she's like, honey, you don't have a brand. You haven't done any work. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, yeah we, where would we start with this? Like, the, cause the thing is, I think that too often people think brand is just as simple as putting up a website and saying, okay, you know, I have a, a personal brand now. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think I think there sort of needs to be a promise at the end of the day. And can we back up that promise, whether you're an individual cultivating a personal brand or a company trying to, like, introduce their brand to the world? The, the promise needs to have substance behind it. Like, there needs to be confidence and credible, like, trails of evidence that speak to, like, okay, you can actually communicate that promise and any interaction that, you know, your existing customers have or new customers that you're trying to like target and engage, like there should be consistency in that promise as, as those interactions happen. But again, if you haven't done any work, it's, it's, it's not as simple as standing up a website and calling it a brand. Um, if anything, you know, it may be, it may, it may make sense to like, just get your at bats, whether you're an individual starting your career and you know, you have at bats and you start to learn what you're known for and the mark that you make on the world. Same is true for companies. Like what type of mark are you making in the landscape? And do you have enough to make a claim that you can articulate a promise against? Let's talk uh, specifically about collaboration and breadth and depth, because <laughs> the thing that I am always baffled by is when I see creative people in particular, especially because we now have this whole solo entrepreneurship idea, this creator economy thing, they try to go it alone. And mm. I realized after a certain point that what Scott Belsky said in one of his books, no, no, no creative idea can thrive on the energy of one person or not even, not even thrive, survive on the energy of one person. And even if you look at something like a book, right, there's a million people behind the scenes who make the you know, accomplishments of the author possible. Totally. Yeah, there's a so huge. How do breadth and depth play a role in all of this? No, you're right, and, and Scott is right. <laughs> you know, there's a huge difference between an idea from a singular individual and you know commercializing an innovation. Um, and I think based on what the future requires, like we 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 definitely for any idea to become a viable innovation and become a viable business, like we have to think through the aspects of, of desirability. we got to think through the aspects of like, can we actually make money from this idea <laughs> and can it be a viable, you know, business concern moving forward? And there's, we need the right like collaboration and people to, to bring that forward. And then, you know, especially in the space of little wrestling with digital technology in general, like how easy or 
difficult is it to actually prototype and and execute and implement uh, and have have our solution actually take take footing in the market? Like, how hard is it to do that? So, how feasible is it? So, I think when we think about breadth and depth, we have to bring in more actors beyond ourselves for any idea, like whether it's publishing a book, designing a pair of kicks. Uh, more people have to be involved. And Brett, what I'm really speaking to is the need for us to bring those different actors together on the table to communicate together around the imperatives that matter, to collaborate in terms of like, you know, connecting the right dots, generating the right ideas, prototyping and learning from the marketplace and garnering strategic alignment. Like what are we going to actually prioritize against a strategy, against that overarching brand promise that we have on the table? And then the depth still speaks to the need for the experts around that table to still have the time and the breathing room to get away from the team, <laughs> to go do the deep work that's required. Like you got to go let the engineer be the engineer and, and go code the best prototype. You got to get let the designer, um, you know, sketch with craft the best value proposition of a shoe on, on, on whether it's 2d or, or, or 3d, like go let them be the designer. Um, go let the anthropologists get in the field and, and c- come away with the, the insights that matter. Go have that business person uh, derive, you know, multiple scenarios of business model in Excel and, and then come back with a s- substantial business model prototype. Like that's the breadth and depth that I think this future is requiring of us. Well, in the interest of time, uh, I know we could talk about all the you know ideas in this book uh, all day long, but uh, there's one thing I wanted to come back to, and we're talking about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And one of the things that you say here is that Black Americans experience racism in the form of microaggressions, gatekeeping, and passive aggressive manipulation that manifests in glass ceilings and exclusion, often these behaviors get coached under the haze of unconscious bias or seeking culture fit as organizations evolve. I believe these behaviors are actually very conscious based on the choice not to educate oneself about the threads of systemic racism in America and not recognize power and privilege in one's present position. So how do leaders develop the self-awareness to not be guided by their unconscious bias? Yeah, you know, I, I definitely am I'm, I'm careful to say, like, I, I don't have the magic pill for all the litany of problems that pervade the workplace when it comes to, like, developing the, the most inclusive environments that we could, you know, aspire to achieve. Um, but but I, what I do tell in the book is the story of my lived personal and professional experience as a Black man navigating corporate America. I'm very careful to not speak for women. I'm not very careful not to speak to non-binary or any other, you know, makeup of person. And we, we all represent layers of intersectionalities that make us human. So, you know, these are complex concerns, but where my experience leads me is really trying to characterize for readers, this gradient between like what I find is, um, what I find is like a, a tendency to placate to gatekeeping behaviors that that keep you know um, the status quo sort of upheld or keeps exclusionary practices uh, going and keeping people out of the, the 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 bigger priorities and opportunities and then the other end of the spectrum is what I 
I dimensionalize as servant leadership. And, and again, I unpack like servant leadership is not my term, right? Nor is gatekeeping. But what I try to do is, at least from my experience, is unpack seven dimensions of what it means to be more of a servant leader than perhaps a gatekeeper. And on any given day, any one of us can find ourselves at different ends of the spectrum. So this is not to say that I, again, like I'm, I, I, I will profess and say I've always been a servant leader. I've probably played into, you know, promoting com- comfort fit at, di- at certain times of my career. But in recent chapters, especially with the need to drive more relevant innovation work to ensure that, uh, you know, hyper-connected people that represent diverse facets of society, like it's less about like having conversations that we used to have and where, where, where someone might say, oh, I'm interviewing this person, but I didn't think I could like, I don't think I want to invite that person to have a beer. I don't think that I, that person is likable or fits our culture or fits. And it's like, what are we talking about when we're having those conversations? And knowing what we know today, like those conversations are actually very inappropriate. Instead, the servant leader is going to have a conversation around like, I'm interviewing this person. I really want to know like how they're going to like really push us for the better, how they're going to challenge our existing pedagogies and methodologies. How are they going to really like move us to, you know, connect with new demographics that we haven't been talking to correctly? Like how, how is that person going to help reduce the blind spots and biases like that? We should go find that person that's going to shape us for the better versus hiring someone that we're comfortable with or feel we can go have a beer with. Yeah. Wow. Um, I have enjoyed talking to you so much. I feel like this is one of those conversations that has left me with a lot of questions, which is always a good thing because those <laughs> are the kinds of conversations that force you to think. Um, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews as the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think, I think it's, Someone who's not afraid to lean into their own curiosity and actually develop their own unique set of experiments against what makes them tick and what excites them. I think if we allow ourselves to be who we are and go after the things that excite us, that make us curious, you know, we're, we're going to leave our own unique indelible mark. So that's what I would encourage. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and insight with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book and everything else that you're up to? Sure. So uh, all roads lead to my author website right now. Uh, people can go to Kevin Bethune, just my name, hyphen reimaginingdesign.com. Uh, so all facets of like what's going on with the book. And then my present uh, design and innovation practice, dreams, design and life. Just like it's spelled dreamsdesignandlife.com gives you a sense of my business concerns, but I'm pretty easy to find on social media just under Kevin Bethune. All right. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.